economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Kevin Huerteche, producer and graduate assistant for the Gordon Institute. Dr. Ross McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordon Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right, so small town America seems to be dying on average. Uh, there's probably some growth in a few of them. Um, but we thought we'd explore today some of the issues surrounding small towns. Um, I think some people could argue it's it, it's just an inevitable, um, or is it? Is there something towns could be doing? Uh, you hear lots of uh, chamber of commerce and other um, community, local small community planners wanting to stimulate business, come up with business incubators, possibly spend some tax dollars to try to make their town attractive, to try to attract people. And so all of these things are kind of well-intentioned. We like the vibrance of having more people and, of course, hate to see uh, storefronts being empty and on, on old main streets that uh, could be very charming and, and um, if there was just some more economic activity. Peter, what's bothering you about this topic? Yeah, so I, I think one way to think about places in the world uh, is to like imagine yourself in those places and look around and see visibly when the most impressive things were done based on what you can see. And so, you know, if you like pop around in, I don't know, like historic, like Western Europe or something like that, the things that people really go to see, the most imp impressive like feats of a lot of these places happened like hundreds of years ago. Uh, and you can kind of see that reflected in the results of those places. And so like, you know, we don't think of Britain and Germany as being like poor countries and they're not poor countries, but uh, they're poorer than most of the, they've got a lower income per person than most of the 50 states. And they, they would rank as one of the bottom states in the US. So if you if you think of Miss, Mississippi as an economically poor off place, uh, you should probably think of England as an economically poor off place or Spain or France, uh, kind of in that same category. And so you can apply that in small towns too, is if you look around small town America, most of the most interesting and impressive structures, for example, tend to have been built like around the time the town was founded. And so like you look at the old post offices, the old courthouses, um, you know, the old bridges and dams, like all of those things seem to have happened like 100 years ago. And what are the new structures? Well, it's like, you know, I don't want to get too much into Tucker Carlson stuff here, but it's like Dollar Generals or like the new things in small towns or like, you know, chain restaurants and stuff like that. Uh, the new side of a small town is basically just like 12 corporate chains on the other side of town down the street. And so uh, I think population is a part of it, but just in general, I think sort of like the soul of the small town is really lost right now. Uh, that I don't see a lot of optimism about small towns. There's lots of people who still love their town, don't get me wrong, but not a lot of people think that their town is the future in any like meaningful way. I don't think maybe it's their future, their family's future, but 
even this, that second one is a little, a little tenuous nowadays where if I were, you know, living in a small town and had a family, I wouldn't assume my kids would live there uh, when I were older because I would assume they'd go somewhere with more opportunity. So I don't know, a few different ideas there, but I just wanted to talk about uh, the state of small towns in the U.S., uh, whether or not uh, there's like a, or an aspect to which they're recoverable uh, or if things are basically done moving now in small towns and we're stuck or if things are going to continue to get worse. Uh, and if so, uh, is there any sort of solution or workarounds or does there need to be? So I don't know. Justin, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think I kind of disagree with you in that I think that what you said, I think is more apt for like 2000 eight to like first year of obama's presidency when tech was like ascendant um and it seemed then to me and maybe that's because i was right it could just be that that when i lived in a big city and then moved to a small town moved to the midwest but it seemed like there was a huge draw from middle america and small towns to cities because that's where the economic opportunity was and it seems to me like that that magnet has kind of been turned off lately, or at least turned way down. In that, I think there's more opportunities in, uh, outside of the big cities now than I would have uh, ten years ago. So I think we are uh, exiting the the trough um, when it terms to when it comes to small towns. So that, that's just my emotional, my vibe check on it. Yeah, here, here's where I disagree with what you're saying. I sort of agree, but disagree. Uh, so we can have like several classes here. When I'm talking small town, I'm thinking like uh, 20,000 or less. Yeah, we need to identify even, even 20,000 is kind of big. Like I, I think of Ottawa basically as a small town. So like we're that, we're, 13, yeah, we're 12, 13,000. Yeah. So somewhere less than 20, uh, ideally less than 10. Uh, I am including one. So this said, there's a lot of variance here, but weirdly, some of these 1,000 towns look exactly like these 10,000 towns. It's like the same historic buildings and the same like Dollar General gas station Walmart situation. Here's where I disagree with Justin, though, is that I agree that the mega cities have less draw. New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, less draw. But I do think still we're seeing a draw to like more minor cities. And so in a Kansas, like it's Kansas City. And so I think people are still moving to Kansas City. If you look at the numbers, they're still moving over to St. Louis or some of these smaller big cities, I think, have absorbed that sort of like opportunity growth. But I don't see the funnel reversing back to small towns. And again, the I think like the way to like visually observe that is like go to a small town and look for the new things and look at what they are. And like some small towns are doing cool new things but again a lot of the new things that you see in small towns are like you know another coffee chain uh that has like lots of books in it and you know kind of a dingy dark vibe it's and i don't have a problem with those places but the point is like it's sort of like the sameness to small towns uh which is really ironic given that like the whole small town experience is that you're sort of in a unique community so that that's what i'm saying i don't know if you agree or disagree still but yeah i still disagree i still think that the I still think the trajectory is, if not going up, then at least decreasing less than it was 10 years ago. And I, I think, think that's that that possible. Draw yeah. from, um, you know, the move from the mega city. Well, now it seems like, well, maybe a lot. I think a lot of those people that wanted to live in San Francisco or New York are looking 
they will move to Kansas City, right? But that I think will push people into the smaller towns around it. And um, I just think, and maybe this is because I operate like in some of the friends that I have on Twitter want to do things like take over small town. They, they go like, look at this opportunity here. Uh, you could, you <laughs> it know, it could be my town. Yeah, you could, <laughs> you could build a business here for extremely cheap. Clarksville. And, yeah, um, and uh, you know. I haven't invited either of you Sorry. to my bunker, but uh, I will be taking over a small town and then I'll, we'll come wage war on Ottawa. Yeah, I mean, all, all that, it sounds great, but it, at this point it hasn't happened, right? Yeah. And I, I think that's where I'm at. Uh, and I, again, I'm actually not opposed to something like that being a possibility that like maybe we could see like big investment revitalization efforts into like, look at all this opportunity, this like, you know, these old buildings that are sitting around that maybe they have deferred maintenance or whatever, but still like it's cheaper than building a whole new building in the middle of new york city or something like that i think that sort of thing does exist that sort of opportunity is there but i just don't see it like i i don't see it happening again i drive down any main street in the u.s and what i see is like brick buildings some of them have antique shops some of them, some of them have restaurants there's a coffee shop and then most of them are empty especially the second floor of these buildings are basically all still empty yeah so so some of some of that has to do with restoration is more expensive than starting from scratch brand new. So if you want to, um, you know, start a new coffee shop, have a chain or something, it, it's pretty expensive from a, a build standpoint to take the old space and fully renovate it. I know it seems like it should be cheaper, but as a former real estate developer and still involved in some real estate, I can assure you it it is it ends up being more costly to somewhat preserve what's there and restore work around the old to bring in you know new building codes and new things um it's easier to start with a plot of land and just start from scratch and so that's why we see um the Starbucks the, the chain restaurants the even even new construction you know happening outside of those and so then what's left to infill in a lot of those old areas is the the mom and pop where I'll, I'll work around existing conditions and I'll make it cute and quaint for my antique store, or my my hair salon or my whatever, and kind of work around the existing conditions rather than really bringing it up to up to a full uh, today's standards that might be necessary, depending on the type of business that it is. Um, so. That was my first comment on, on that part, but also to get a vibrant city, if we go down, let's go less than 10,000, maybe even less than 5,000. Peter's right, you'll see main streets that have some of the old buildings and they kind of look similar. But to have a city really grow, you need that specialization and exchange. So, you know, what allows a, an opera house to be there? Well, the per capita demand for opera is maybe people want to go once a year to an opera. And I'm, I'm using an extreme example to show why the big city has the opera and why we don't see opera houses in even, you know, medium-sized cities. So different types of uh, businesses have different uh, demand levels. And so the just the population base creates those um, uh, opportunities to make more and more diverse goods and services in a given city. And so almost by default, the small town is going to be shrinking because to get to those synergies, the town with the leg up, if there's not congestion problems, is going to continue to attract more. And then there'll be more exchanges, more specialization, and you start to have a little bit uh, more vibrant city. And I think Ottawa is probably somewhat, I think we're right on the 
um, edge of, of that. Uh, we've been pretty stagnant for 50 years. Um, uh, from an old barber that used to cut Wayne Angel's hair here on Ottawa Main Street, he said, when he first started cutting hair 50 years ago, uh, Lawrence and Ottawa were about the same size. We were kind of competing cities uh, population-wise. But then what went into Lawrence? KU, the state university, state money started pouring in, tax dollars. And today, Lawrence is at what, 90,000, Justin? Maybe not quite that big. Uh, is it 100? Yeah. Okay. 100,000. And where's Ottawa? Same where it was 50 years ago. We're at 12 to 13,000. And so, um, you know, having some sort of uh, diversity like a, a university brings to town can have a major impact on the, on the growth of that town. So I'm going to disagree with part of what you said there, Russ, about especially the population-based thing. Because, again, what I am really talking about is like things that are in cities that like already used to be there. And so like there are not 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 one in particular, but there are small towns with these playhouses uh, where they used to do shows uh, and they did shows when they had less people than they have today. And so it's not like an issue of uh, there aren't enough people to sustain the industry. It's like, no, the buildings were sustained at one point when people were poorer than they are today and they're less of them than they were today. The difference is now it's like cheaper to go to big cities. That's one piece of it. And so people would just rather commute to Lawrence. And so maybe Lawrence can, you know, out compete on those sorts of things. So that's one reason. Uh, but another reason is I just think people have brought into this like global homogenous like culture taste pattern of like, you know, I'm not interested in my local community's play because like I'm going to go see the new Avengers like big action scene <laughs> uh, roller coaster movie. And it's just like, I, 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 I'm not opposed to the idea that there are economies of scale when it comes to having a city and some things only make sense in big cities. I agree with that. But I think relatively we way overestimate what could be sustainable in a small town if only the culture were different, which I know that's a huge <laughs> if. Yeah. Uh, and I understand that. Like we can't snap our fingers and change the culture. Uh, but people used to get on the river out here and like, you know, go boating and stuff. And I know there's legal things behind that. Uh, there used to be yeah. like trains running through like things and dinner, like train cars, dinner cars, things like that. And so I, I get that some of it's legal, some of it's regulatory, but I do think a big part of it is just like, I'd rather just go up to like the big box store or the movie theater and like watch the same thing everybody else is watching and purchase the same thing and wear the same clothes everybody else has. I think there's a huge homogenization aspects yeah. going on here. Yeah, I think we are creatures of comfort. And because I'm shocked how I always want to go to a restaurant that I've never been to. I, the last thing I want to do when I go visit a new city on uh, some places to go to a chain restaurant. But how do they survive? Because I'm unusual. <laughs> Most people want to know that they've been to a Hard Rock Cafe or a uh, Buffalo Wild Wings or whatever and not explore the the new mom and pop uh, store uh, because they appreciate that consistency. So, well, this looks like a good spot to take a break. Um, I, some of the things I want to talk about on the second half is how uh, the impact of interstates and how that, I think, has influenced uh, a lot of the small towns. So uh, we had Rachel Ferguson on about three times, I think, on our podcast. She did some work in relationship to um, some of the problems interstates uh, caused uh, around the United States, and I think that's an interesting story, and maybe part of the part of the puzzle uh, for thinking about small town America and whether it can uh, make a comeback or not. We'll be back in just a bit. Ottawa University has an exciting new major. PPE, which stands for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. 
Each of these three fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for free enterprise education and its contribution to human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have some great high school student programs like PPE Fest. This is an event where students get to listen to some world-renowned speakers and then participate in competition geared around philosophy, politics, and economics. Our everyday economics program is just a half day on a Saturday, and we will have an integrated discussion about common sense economics. We have a college credit microeconomics course that runs every eight weeks. Your high school student can earn college credit for the special price of $200. If you know some students interested in programs like these, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. All right, so we're back. And um, I think we all tend to romanticize culture. Um, Peter brought up culture, when we can only change culture. culture. I mean, how many answers uh, corn going to solve uh, around the world with different problems? Um, as we age, oh, things are changing and it must be the culture, although Peter's a young guy, but even so he's not saying way back when, when I was 20 something like I might say, <laughs> but that's going to only continue to grow. He's kind of, a, I think, a, an old soul of sorts. Um, so I'm not sure where we can go with, with culture exactly, but uh, Justin, what are your thoughts on culture? Well, I think that Peter's right that it, it, that there is a kind of cultural that there is definitely a cultural element to this. And I think Peter is also right that a culture where everyone thinks, well, I'll just go to the big box stores or whatever, um, that that does erode small town, for lack of a better word, community or something like that. And I just want to say, I think the left does a much better job at maintaining their local cultures than the right does mm, in this. That's true. And I think that you find vibrant small towns a lot of times in places that are like enclaves of like right off of big blue cities but um, for this reason i i wish it wasn't this way but i do think that on the left you are much more likely to find people who say things like it's really important to support the local theater or farmer's uh, market and other yeah stuff like that. Uh, i think of... that's I think there's a big reorganization going on in politics and maybe some of this will get sorted out differently. I think COVID did a uh, moved a bunch of people who might have considered themselves leftist, but really worried about local culture. It might've pushed them more towards what they would call like a centrist um, and opposition to this global homogenization that Peter's talking about. Um, but I think if you just picked a random person who considered, especially anyone over 40 uh, or I guess, I guess over 50 and ask them how important is it to like support your, you know, your local economy or something like that, you would find much more agreement with this with somebody who's left on the left side of the political spectrum than someone who's on the right. Um, and so I think that might be another reason why people see so many dying small towns is that the people who tend to uh, still be in small towns usually they tend to be on the political 
right if you look at like the voting map or something like that yeah which is to say that their cultural uh, demonstrated preferences um, are usually things that might erode the cultural capital of their community sure yeah more individualistic yeah 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 that makes sense to me and i i agree with your comment completely about uh like you don't see on the cultural right i think as much intentionality about like something like preserving community or if you do it tends to be like the community within the community even like the family uh or a church like more small scale and you know i i think like there is a relationship here between and maybe this is his own podcast and we could talk about it at a different time and it does relate to a podcast we've done before on urban and stuff but the internet actually reminds me a lot of what we're seeing in small towns right now uh where the internet used to be this interesting and vibrant and different place and now it's just like seven websites and that's the whole internet basically and it didn't used to be that way so yeah uh, to address rest of the thing is like yeah we can over use cultural as in, like an over explanation it's like it's one of those things that it's a black box and so you could sort of say everything is culture but I do think like there is something to the fact that like the same things are, you know, the cool all over the world at the exact same time. It's like people are making TikToks about Stanley Cups in every country on the earth right now. And like, how boring is it that we live in this world where like the cup is the cool thing uh, right now? And like, there's no, there's not a cool thing in your town or there's not a cool thing to in your school. It's like, you're just like one piece of this giant wave that like one thing is cool at once one fashion is cool at once it's like i think the part of the issue on the right stems from the fact that conservatives have gotten swept up in capitalism and corporatism being the same thing it's that like that and this happened during the reagan era that we took free markets to be equal to big business and i think big business has done great things for our economy i think people would be a lot poorer if not for big business compared to 1970 or something like that but it is possible to assign them too many virtues. Uh, and I think we have sort of assigned them the virtue of the free market when really they're just like one result in the free market. Uh, and once upon a time, we have other results in the free market. Uh, for the listeners, what, what's your, and maybe me, <laughs> how would you, uh, corporatism, uh, you did a little bit there, but uh, what what does that mean? And you're saying capitalism is better, it sounds like, but um, what what's the difference? Yeah, so the difference between a free market and corporatism, a free a free market is just a support for competition, people's ability to enter and exit industries, bring new ideas that challenge the status quo. Uh, whereas corporatism would be uh, sort of a support for existing businesses. Uh, and so, you know, passing rules and laws that, you know, help Walmart create jobs would be an example of corporatism, as opposed to passing rules and laws that let every business be on an even playing field with the Walmarts of the world. Uh, and so a lot of times we say that something like a, you know, tax benefit, a special tax benefit is a version of capitalism when really if you're giving one corporation a specifically lower tax rate so they'll create more jobs, what you're really doing is shutting out competition. That's the best example of corporate corporatism versus when you give like a special tax privilege to just one company and no other company. It's complicated, it's though, right? Yeah, yeah. Of that. So I think he was 100% right that these special um, privileges are examples of corporatism. But even regulations that can seem like they nominally apply equally to everybody, like requiring that, uh, you know, firms fill out certain tax forms, 
those can really disproportionately affect smaller firms. So yes. that a Walmart who already has a team of lawyers, this doesn't affect them at all. But for a mom and pop having to, you know, acquire a lawyer to navigate some hoop that they and Walmart have to jump through, that this can really disproportionately affect a smaller firm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, what I was going to say, it gets complicated that there are something of uh, bigger can be provided in a less costly way. So economies of scale is the idea of if something can be, you know, made in volume, that there's some advantages, cost advantages, which then can be uh, conveyed to the uh, consumer through lower prices, right? That's kind of the Walmart model. Um, people make arguments, and I think I'm with them, that Walmart's uh, been one of the greatest things that's helped the poor compared to any other government policy and anything else. So, And that's really Walmart taking advantage of, of a free market and being able to do that. I, I think advantages to Walmart have probably been fairly limited. Um, maybe there'd been some you know, hey, if you build this Walmart here, we'll give you some sort of tax break. But usually it's Walmart just buying at free market prices some land near the freeway and the the in-town Main Street people protesting, you're going to destroy our jobs, our quaint culture. So I wanted to kind of throw that back to Peter to get his thoughts on that, because when you gave your, you know, protecting existing businesses type of thing with corporatism, I think that's a little bit of what went on with protecting you know, Main Street versus um, Walmart to some extent, and you're ruining our city, our, our town isn't going to be the same. And and I, a lot of that turned out to be true, but uh, it seems a little bit of a contrary to um, what you're saying in terms of something that would preserve small towns. Yeah, so that's the most obvious example, but uh, there's more important examples. And so like Federal Reserve policy is actually like the biggest benefit to large corporations uh, relative to small businesses. It's like if you have access and the ability to take out multi-million dollar loans, mm -hmm. the Fed pushes interest rates to zero for a thousand years, uh, Walmart <laughs> gets to build a bunch of stores on the savings of American people. And yeah. so like that's the best example of like actual uh, corporatism. It's harder to explain. Um, yeah. I think like special tax privileges are a good example. And actually, I agree with uh, your assessment about Walmart in particular. Like I think Walmart as a business is actually underrated rather than overrated. So I hate to feed too much into the anti-Walmart sentiment. But, uh, you know, we don't have to limit to Walmart. We can talk about like, you know, big food companies and how like they've been, they're increasingly centralized. Now we've got 4,000 brands masquerading as 4,000 companies, but it's really just one company. I mean, there, it, it's it's just all sorts of uh, examples of this. So I, I'm not saying that like town shouldn't have a Walmart. That's not what I'm getting at. I don't think your town has to force a Walmart out in order to be a town. Uh, I just wish that we were more accepting of the idea as people uh, that sometimes like there is a value to a product that exists outside of just like what it does and what the price is. The, there, there's metrics that matter beyond that. Like the fact that something was made by someone you care about or know uh, can actually be part of the value of a product. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to not be. Uh, nothing in economics says that like the physical attributes and the price point are the only two pieces of a good or service that matters. So I, I'm in favor of uh, help, helping small town businesses compete on the margin of that it actually matters that it was produced in a small town. And that doesn't lead to any less consumer welfare. Maybe it leads to less like dollars and cents, material wealth, whatever you want to put it. But those aren't the same thing. And I don't mind disentangling them. Yeah. So about four years ago, Justin might remember, but I debated 
by Russell, our old professor, on the whole buy local concept. Uh, and it was a fun debate. I took the don't buy local. He took the buy local, and I think he won because he's got the the easy sentiment of the college students that buy local makes sense for a lot of good reasons, by the way. But my argument was to think local rather than buy local. And my argument was that buy, just buying isn't enough. Um, uh, if I, I don't think uh, other alternatives that are lower priced, so we take the local hardware store that is selling an identical product to the big box Home Depot, um, but it has to charge a higher price because of higher overhead or whatever uh, for their small town store and less volume of sales, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that maybe some of those businesses would need to disappear off of those main streets and that I don't want to morally penalize the citizen of the, of the town that's not buying at the local hardware store and runs down the road to Home Depot, that that's morally wrong. Um, because I think if the money he's saving by buying something cheaper and then he turns out to be donating to the local food shelves and uh, donating to the homeless shelter and doing other fine things with the, the money that was saved, the morality of that comes down to the person rather than um, just saving a business that um, the moral part would have to be with the owner of that business somehow. I totally agree with uh, Peter that these are bundled products and that you should think more than just, I mean, that for some people, more than the bottom line price of knowing that it was made here locally or grown locally or whatever, all of that plays into it. And I make decisions that way as well. But I don't think there should be a moral thing. So now we got to go to our philosopher who's really ready to tear me up. I can see by his eyes. Yeah, it sounds like what you said is gibberish. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like you're trying to say buy local without admitting that you really think Levi's right. That you have to buy, local. <laughs> uh, buy local doesn't mean uh, you should be uh, morally castigated for not buying local. It just means that all things considered local that something is made locally ought to count in its favor um, it doesn't mean you should never buy anything that's not local um, that's just what buy local means and it sounds like what you're trying to cram into think local is all the things that people say when they mean buy local um, so peter's point i i take it is that there are costs and benefits to buying local um, that aren't considered when you just look at things through like the corporatist lens. Um, yeah, and, and I, I will say like the central point of recognition is not like, I don't know about moral issue. I think actually with certain companies that this is appropriate. Like, I think it's wrong for someone in Ottawa to buy from Starbucks. Like, I don't think it's hugely wrong, but I think it's wrong. We have two good coffee shops in, shops in town. Starbucks is a force for bad in the world in general. Uh, we don't have to get to, They are. Uh, they they just are. Like, they, the, most of what Starbucks does now is lobby for policies that make uh, the lives of people worse. Uh, and meanwhile, crushing the employees who try to uh, activate the ideology that the the co company pretends to to uh, engage with. And so, uh, yeah, like I, I am when I see someone uh, buy Starbucks in town, I do feel kind of snobbish about it. And I might start saying something to people who do it. Like, why would you do that? Uh, but but uh, regardless, mo moving on from Starbucks narrowly. Yeah, it's like. You're right that like there's sometimes where you should buy uh, non-local, but it's a trade-off, right? And like we need to just like we ask people on the left to acknowledge the trade-off. We need to acknowledge the trade-off that everything else held constant. If you buy 
big box rather than local, it hurts local. Like that, there's a, it's just a trade-off. It's one of the trade-offs that we encounter every day. Sure, you could outdo the trade-off by like making some donation or something like that. So like we can do that, you know, by donating to the poor and like we can alleviate the trade-off that way. But everything else held constant. A dollar for non-local is a dollar away from local. And, and again, to some extent, that's okay. But recognizing the trade-off matters. I, I do want to move into the realm of what I think is maybe like some solution to this. I think part of the reason that we face this sort of issue is because we've allowed a homogenization on a lot of different fronts. Education is the number one. Like, I know that this is going to sound really unpatriotic of me, but why do we spend a lot of time on American history with our kids? Like, why? Let's really think about it. It's like, does it matter to my children about, like, George Washington and, you know, like, crossing the river to defeat the British people and all this? It's like, what is geographically, like, more uh, interesting for my children? It's like, well, there's history that happened here. Fact, there's like a whole shelf in the library about local history like you can find out people whose families have been here since the beginning like there's, there's literally ottawa history and there's that's true of all these small towns we have this huge basically history industrial complex of like these <laughs> academics who research big important questions like the war of 1812 and none of that crap matters like you know they, they they'll sell it and they'll say don't you love america like we really have to learn about the war of 1812 and it's like yeah, but I like actually love lot Ottawa a lot more than I love America. Maybe not as like its aggregate effects, but on the margin, I do. And so it's like you know, this big like the the I think a big transition to this country was when presidents stopped saying these United States and started saying the United States. You know, removing our like mm. disaggregated mm. culture. Uh, I think that's like a big movement. Is like let's start teaching our kids that they live in a place like they don't live in an entire world. And it's true. You don't, you don't exist in an entire world. You live in a particular place at a particular time. That doesn't mean that place is not in the world. Uh, I, I hate this like acts local think global thing. It's like, I don't really want to think global either. I, I mentioned this on a podcast before. I want to think local too. Yeah. Like, think local acts local, just do local. Yeah. Most people screw things up. Uh, all the worst people in history were thinking global. So I'm tired of the think global thing. I think this starts from a young age. Uh, you can make a difference like right here and be happy with that. Like we need to stop pretending like the only way to have a good life is to like change the whole world. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I think that was part of my think local argument as well, which is, I think, a good one. So I think the reason people spend so much time on history is because it's a collective myth making. <laughs> That's why we spend so much time forcing. Yeah. This, and we can tell when people start changing the kind of history that they teach, yeah. what they're trying to do is change the national myth. Yeah. Um, so uh, the argument that we ought to focus more on local history is like, no, our myths should be local myths. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I agree 100%. Like, and I'm, we're, we shouldn't be opposed to myths. Like myths are necessary. You can't tell history without myth. Like not everybody no. can learn history by like looking through the archives and the letters that people wrote to each other and create their own like meta narrative of history, that narrative is going to exist. Why don't we have it about like our local region? Because by the way, it's a lot easier to be sympathetic to uh, about a myth that's local. It's like, it's really easy to have a narrative that like the Americans hated the native Americans, you know, the, the settlers hated the native Americans and killed them all. 
Uh, it's actually pretty easy to do that on a countrywide scale because that did happen in places in the United States. Yeah. But when you look at Ottawa history, what you see is actually a relatively good relationship. And what you With see the, yeah. in reality is actually President Jackson was the one who marched everybody out of Ottawa, much to the chagrin of the people who lived in Ottawa who were settlers who actually had good relationships with the Native Americans yeah. here. Yeah. And so the, I, th I think this is an important part of uh, delegitimizing some of the myths that are over-aggregated pessimistic lies, essentially. Yeah, I don't know what fraction of the curriculum is devoted for that, but I would like to move to approve uh, Dr. Jacobson's motion. Do I hear a second? I mean, I like that. I think if you want to learn about other forms of history, you'll just do that on your own, out, out of your natural inclinations. But um, learning more about the place you live and the history there, and then maybe if if that does reduce the amount of time spent on history now we can fill it in with some other things that might be um good for education like math yeah and, and it is and reading i i do want to highlight that it's, it's not like limited to education this is an example one of the reasons that i think we have a homogenous global culture is because we have pretty much a homogenous way that children exist they all go into the school system it looks basically the same in the entire United States. It looks pretty similar in most of Europe. Uh, and like this school system uh, generates these weird behaviors and weird cultures of conformity and things like that, uh, that you don't get naturally without this weird uh, top-down school system scenario. And, you know, kids drive interest. Kids drive what their parents buy. Kids drive, you know, what's popular in the next 10 years. Uh, of course, cultural products aren't popular. Because someone is never going to be able to convince their friends that they're going to like trend on TikTok for like having like an Ottawa product. It, it doesn't matter to people in some other shouldn't that Ottawa is creating products, but we should exist in a town where it can matter in the town, at least. So you said you had a solution that you probably wouldn't like. Uh, was it our, was it the thing they already got mad at it, irrationally? It, it, it's simply to accept that there might be... Um, to just let people live that towns are going to shrink and towns are going to grow and that we're better off accepting that rather than trying to hope, wish, or tax and subsidize into existence what was true 20, 30, 50 years ago. And so I think if there's more of an acceptance of this is this is just uh, the way it goes, We uh, there's been a little bit of literature in economics on smart shrinking, the, in, our, in other words, um, uh, facilitating the the shrinkage of the town rather than hanging our hopes on subsidizing some land and waiting for the next business to come into town to be the savior and kind of being fairly wasteful with public funds um, that we just acknowledge that it's it's going to be small and, and some people are going to want the small town experience and that might open up other opportunities but just to kind of leave it alone. And I don't think people like that. They want action. Like, yeah, yeah. I want the Chamber of Commerce to sure. lead lead the new, uh, to be marketing how great our little town is so that the next thing comes in. And I just think a lot of that is is wasteful. I think that uh, leaving it alone is fine as long as you've noticed that people aren't, that people are making decisions with an accurate picture of what the costs of those decisions are. Like, so to give an example, I live in Lawrence, right? And Lawrence has a great record store. Like one of the best record stores I've been to, like it rivals the Amoeba in San Francisco. We're talking so, vinyl records. Yeah, vinyl records. Um, and it's very hard. Like, it's very easy for me if I look at a record I want to go like, oh, I can get that on Amazon. And I go like, or I could go, I, I just drive downtown and pick it up from Love Garden. 
and I like I want there to be a record store downtown because I like there to be somewhere for me to browse too, which it's very difficult to do on Amazon. Or there was one skateboard shop in Lawrence, and it's actually combined with a screen printing shop. Um, and I can get like a skateboard part. Um, I was getting some like bones rails. I could order them online. And it'd be delivered. Amazon will even deliver it that day, right? <laughs> or, you know, I go down there and I get it and they actually install it, which is nice. Yeah. Um, but I also find out, oh, actually the price on these bearings are going to come down in a month or whatever. Yeah. Um, and um, I also found out that uh, a part that I thought was broken on mine wasn't broken. So there are all these things and those are benefits to me. But if I'm only looking at like, the cost of this part and getting it real quick it's very easy for me to that if i keep doing that um and if everybody acts the way i did in this you know Kantian yeah. way then i'm not there's not going to be a place for me to go to figure out what's wrong with my skateboard or why this record doesn't play which i've had to go down there before and find out like my stylus was ruined or something yeah. like that so it's somewhat of an investment in future consumption in that regard of Having a relationship. Yeah, and you can't with, make with, that investment if you don't know what the costs and the benefits are. Similar to uh, Trendle Lumber here in town when our class did a thing and we came up with kind of marketing, small town lumber store versus big box store kind of concept. And we came up with the slogan, service matters. And, and it's for those reasons you just highlighted, right? Is that you know you can go for advice there. It's the same people. It's not a 18 year old kid that's revolving through the system at the big box store. You can actually talk to the employees there and get advice on how to yeah. build your deck or set your boards or be condescended uh, to by an adult. Yes, at least. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I, I do want to just highlight that actually, maybe to Russ's surprise, I agree with a lot of what Russ said. And I agree with a lot of what Russ said because the restoration techniques that Russ was talking about that he's opposed to are the ones that are currently happening and not working. And so like the chamber of commerce driven thing, the incubator idea, uh, you know, you hear all of these different terms for like these schemes and strategies to restore sm small towns. And I am a firm believer that like you do, you don't bring back the past. Like that's actually not something that happens. Uh, and then this is where like I differentiate myself from like probably boomers on this issue, which is like a lot of boomers want their small town to return to what it was before. And I use a lot of the same rhetoric because the point, like, I want to highlight that the potential exists for the town to be something great because it has been great before. Uh, and in some ways, small towns are still great. But I, yeah, you know what I mean, like commercially or otherwise. And so that potential exists. And so the question is, like, what does that actually look like going forward? And the answer is not the same as it used to be. And the answer is not like we just subsidize a bunch of businesses and they show up and they make everything like just magically get better. No, it has to look like different. And like, I don't know exactly what it looks like. There is like a spontaneous order element of like, we didn't imagine how Walmart would look. Like that was not someone's idea. And we didn't imagine how Amazon would look. Uh, we don't figure out how things are gonna be before they happen based on the past. That's just not how it works. You have to have a vision. You have to carry out the vision. Your small town is literally not gonna be what it was before, but it can, can still be great in a way that looks different than it used to. Uh, but still is valuable for the town. And so I agree with you 100%, Russ. I'm not a chamber of commerce, rah, rah, you know, do they, and not that I'm opposed to those people doing their jobs, but like the tried and true methods of restoring small towns just don't work. I mean, it, it doesn't work anywhere. Yeah. yeah. The things that people liked about small towns weren't pre-planned. That's right. Time. Yeah, exactly. You know, those happened organically. That's so right. It's a mistake That's to right. think that 
we can we plan can, our way back to something good can wasn't come up the first place. Uh, and i think yeah. the chances are better not something good can come up organically if we're not trying to force something else to happen that we can kind of get smaller better and there can still be something good uh that can come about from that yeah so, so I think that we all conclude and agree with don't drink Starbucks. And that's basically <laughs> the number one takeaway from this podcast. <laughs> well, it is true. I drink Guatemalan coffee that my wife brings up from Guatemala. And so I have reduced my Starbucks purchases by uh, a great amount. That's pretty much all we've been drinking now. But I, I, I did like their coffee, but I do uh, think about some of those those things you brought up as well. Um, just to to think locally about the space you're in, which would include education and other things. Um, and uh, maybe we can make the world a little bit better place. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five star rating helps other people find us. Uh, please pass this along to your friends and family on uh, your various devices. And um, other than that, be fruitful, and multiply. Thanks. Thank you.